podcast devoted to dispelling myths, rebuilding appreciation for God's Word, and rediscovering the Old Testament for the life of faith. My name is Dr. Tim Howe, and I am joined by my co-host, Dr. Brian Koning. We are about to enter into an epic battle of ideas, a debate in the Counterpoint series. We're going to be talking tonight about the historicity of the books of Job and Jonah in the Old Testament. But before we get to it, Dr. Brian, how are you doing today? Tim, I'm doing good. I'm excited for tonight. Uh, this is a topic that, you know, I had a lot of fun kind of thinking through, trying to figure out what my own view was. That's part of the the joy I've had in doing this series is it forces me to go, you know, these ideas I've had in the back of my mind, I need to actually lock these down in some meaningful way. So I'm excited for it. Listeners, thank you for joining us here this evening. We're excited to have you all here. Uh, apologize for some technical issues with the video last week. Hopefully we've got those fixed. Uh, but for those of you listening on RSS or where you get your podcast content, hopefully this is also going out to you just fine. Uh, and we invite you to join in, send us your questions, or show up Monday night and hop into the discussion. Because last week we had some really good stuff going on in the discussion forums. Looking forward to more of that this week. So welcome, everyone. And Tim, let's get down to it. I'm excited. Yes. All right. Let's do it. Well, uh, so tonight, as I mentioned, we are going to be debating the historicity of the books of Job and Jonah. And so uh, we're going to take maybe five to maybe max of 10 minutes where we're each going to present our position. And uh, I get to go first today. And so... Uh, as you think of the book of Jonah in particular, and as you also think of the book of Job, uh, there's some questions that arise as we consider them. And the question that we're going to uh, debate tonight is whether or not they describe historical events or whether or not they are stories that teach moral truths, but we're not intended to see them as literally happening or happening in history. So I'm going to argue uh, that they are historical. Now, I want to say this up front before you pick up a stone or anyone picks up a stone. Uh, both Brian and I believe in the historicity of the Old Testament events. That's not what we're debating tonight. And I want to say that up front because among the world of Old Testament scholars, and particularly those outside of the evangelical circle, uh, there are many scholars who take a very skeptical view uh, that the events described in the Old Testament took place. Neither Brian and I are in that camp. What we're debating tonight is whether there are particular books that are not intended to be taken historically, but rather Brian is going to take the position that they teach moral truths, or I'll let him explain his in a minute, uh, but that historicity is not required in terms of how the readers should have understood those books. But I'm going to argue for my position. I believe that we should always uh, take what the Bible claims for itself as true and appropriate, right? We are readers, and the Bible is asking us, and particularly these Old Testament books, are written from the perspective of readers receiving them as God's Word, first and foremost, but also, in this case, I argue that they present themselves as historical fact, and here's why. Because when we see stories in the Old Testament that are not meant, meant to be taken historically, there are certain markers that indicate that. Uh, and here's what I mean by stories that aren't meant to be taken literally or historically. There are parables in the Old Testament. For instance, you've got the parable that Nathan uh, tells to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. 
he comes to confront David and he tells him a story about a rich man who owned many sheep. And then there was a poor man who had one sheep. The rich man took the lamb from the poor man. And then in, uh, in return, he gave him nothing. And of course, what does David say? He says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan turns to him with that bony prophetic finger and says, what? You are the man. And there are certain literary features in that story that indicate it's not historical, that it's a story told to proclaim a truth, but that the story itself did not happen in literal time and space history. Um, in those narratives, they tend to be simple. They tend to have a very clear moral lesson. And as was the case in the second Samuel, uh, eventually it comes out, hey, I'm not talking about a real life event. I'm talking about a story that's trying to hit you between the eyes with the truth that you need to hear in that case. So let's consider the books of Jonah and Job. Is there anything in them that would indicate that they're meant to be stories that teach a moral lesson versus historical reality? And I would argue no. With the book of Jonah, there are certain features that catch anyone, uh, anyone's attention, especially kids, right? That Jonah is swallowed by a large fish. Um, there's also some debate about the historicity of Nineveh's repentance. Did it happen in recorded history? Do we have any external evidence of this? There's also some questions about whether or not uh, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, was kind of its own autonomous state at the time, or whether it was part of the larger Assyrian empire. And here's what I would say. Even though there are some details of the text that might seem a little bit odd to us, at the end of the day, I still believe it's historical, and here's why. Is it possible for a human to be swallowed by a fish? Absolutely, especially if God calls the fish to come and swallow the person, uh, as is said to happen in the book of Jonah, that God spoke to the fish, the fish swallowed him, and then the fish took him where he needed to be. Uh, and then when it comes to issues of Nineveh, Nineveh's repentance, I would say, well, it's not surprising to us that we don't see that in the historical annals of, say, Assyria. Uh, but just because we don't see it recorded in their records doesn't mean it didn't happen. After all, we do have it recorded in the Scripture. Uh, Job is a little bit different. Job is not presented in narrative form, as the book of Jonah is. Uh, and in the book of Job, Job, it, it seems a little bit unlikely that Job is supposed to be a kind of live action recording, as it were. I tend to re read Job as an historical event that was later reflected on, possibly by Job, and then recorded. And here's why, because it's not likely that Job, especially in his misery, sat down and started talking in poetry, right? And the book of Job, if you're not familiar with this, is written in Hebrew poetry. Uh, it's also not likely that his friends came to him and started their own uh, their own monologues in Hebrew poetry. I think what we have here is an actual historical event that then is reflected upon and written in a very particular way. But again, that's not anything unusual. The Book of Lamentations is a good example of this. The Book of Lamentations reflects on an historical event, the fall of Jerusalem, but it's also ordered and structured in a very clear way as Jeremiah, the author of Lamentations, was reflecting on what had happened. And here's where I think the New Testament actually is very important. Uh, because as we think about the New Testament, I think Brian's going to argue that the New Testament doesn't actually determine this issue for us. Uh, and to that I would say, the instances where we see both Job and Jonah come into play in the New Testament, they both seem to be referred to as historical figures. So James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. 
uh, James refers to Job. He uses Job as an example of righteous suffering. And yes, it's true that he could be referring to a, a fictional character and saying, here's an example uh, from a story that you know, but here's the problem with this. Uh, he actually says in verse 10, consider the prophets and what they endured. And then in at verse 11, he says, and consider Job. And so the prophets are obviously historical. So it stands to reason that Job is historical as well. Otherwise, it would kind of be like in one sentence saying, well, think about George Washington and Iron Man, right? That would kind of play with our mind because how can you use one figure who's obviously historical and then one that's obviously fictional? I think the simplest answer is that Job is supposed to be seen as historical as well. Same thing with Jonah. Jesus does not only refer to Jonah, and this is in Matthew chapter 12, he actually refers to him as Jonah the prophet, uh, which I think speaks again to the historical nature of his life. And then right after referring to him as jo Jonah the prophet, he gives details of the text, right? He says that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish, that he was spit out three days later, and that this was meant as a sign. And again, he ties that story of Jonah with another historical story that we know is, is meant to be taken as historical fact, and that was the coming of the Queen of the South to see the sign of Solomon. Uh, and so as we think about the way that they are presented in the text, I think the New Testament very clearly does associate Job and Jonah with other historical figures, and therefore the best explanation is that their stories are not meant to be taken as some kind of moral lesson, but as actual historical events that are, of course, recorded for us uh, and left for us in the Scriptures. Now, what can we learn from this? Here's what I would argue. I would argue that this helps us in terms of understanding the Bible's interest is much more than simply recording historical events. I believe that these events happened. I believe we're supposed to see Job and Jonah as historical figures. But what we have to understand is the scriptures are not merely or simply descriptions of historical events. They are inspired interpretations of those events, which is why, again, you can have someone coming and speaking poetically about events that happened in history. The fact that they use poetry to describe it doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means that they're interpreting it through a particular lens, and they want us to see it through that lens. So my view is that these authors wrote historical events, that Job and Jonah both describe historical events, and importantly, that they intended the readers to see them that way. But I also think that they wrote them from a particular perspective, both of them reflective after the events happened. Uh, and that's my position. So, Brian, uh, I know you're going you're gonna to throw some things at us that maybe for some of us we haven't heard before, but for me, I believe they were both historical events, and I believe that's the way they were meant to be received. So, Brian, that's my view. Again, here I can stand. Here I stand. I can do no other. Uh, but, Brian, I will kick it to you. All right. Well, thank you, Tim, for that. Um, as one of our commenters said last week, uh, I get to play the bad guy with the kind of odd view, <laughs> and I will happily don my black hat again. Cue the Western music. So, uh, I want to start with some definitions, because I think we need to start by defining terms, just to be clear. Very bold move here. Um, but no, uh, so let's <laughs> talk about things. When we talk about history, history refers to the events of the past. 
Now that's distinct from the recounting or recording of those events. So this is something Tim knows, but just for you listeners, history is what happened in the past. When you read a book that's talking about the past, you're reading historiography or history writing. That refers to the interpretive accounts of the past, wherein a writer has tried to make sense of history for their audience. To put it another way, when I look at this question we're debating tonight, I believe it's asking me, do I think that Jonah and Job are representational works about real events? Now, Tim, I'll ask you kind of your definition, if you're okay with that definition during the Q&A time. Um, yeah. I think that definition actually gives you more freedom, because I'm not saying this has to be a one-for-one -one literal uh, recounting of their lives. I'm okay with some artistic elements. I'm mm. saying, is this a representational work about real events? Okay. So that's what I think we're talking about. Yes. Now, as Tim said, and Tim, I do appreciate the kind of uh, shielding me a little bit. Uh, I, I am not trying to doubt the Bible's veracity or have a low view of Scripture. I have a very high view of Scripture. Um, and so I believe we need to claim for the Bible what it claims for itself. Not mm -hmm. every part of the Bible claims to be talking about history. If you read Psalms as history, you're going to have a bad time. It's not going to help you out as much. The historicity of Jonah and Job are things that I'm not sure the Bible makes a claim about. And in that case, or if it's the case that it's claiming it's not historical, then saying that these are real history figures, that's going to distort the text. A high view of the Bible is not always going to be supported by insisting that we have a historical account in every instance. Tim brought up a great example of this. A parable is not real history. And insisting that a parable story is real history is going to be problematic, right? And miss the point of the story. So that's my preamble. And with that out of the way, I tend to agree with Tim, uh-oh, uh, that Jonah <laughs> is historical, but I'm much less certain that Job is. So my view is I think that Jonah is historical. I don't think Job is. And I'm going to throw arguments out there for both. So even though I agree with Tim, let me offer some arguments against Jonah's historicity, because I think these require good answers. And Tim, I didn't hear answers to some of these, so this would be good fodder for our Q&A time. All right. So first, one of the major claims of the book of Jonah is that Nineveh repented after a sermon of five words, which is, I mean, does every preacher like aspire to that? Like, yes, five <laughs> words. It's all I need, man. The congregation um, however, might repent if you only use five words. That's a good strategy. Sorry, I go. won't interrupt again. <laughs> no, that's all right. Um, but in the historical record, there's no evidence that Nineveh, a city that we have lots of records from the Assyrian Empire about, there's no record of this event in their history. None. That seems to be a fairly large lacuna, or fancy word for gap, in the historicity of the book. A major event can't be corroborated. Although, uh, So point two, although Jonah is a historical prophet, he shows up in 1 Kings, this event is not mentioned in his life. In fact, he's not even the primary character when he's mentioned in the book of Kings. He simply mentioned that he's come to Jeroboam II and prophesied positively for this evil king, which is somewhat fascinating. Third, the fish, the whale. Is Jonah a whale of a tail or a tail of a whale? That's for another time. But uh, interestingly, right, the, the, the fish is somewhat insignificant to the plot, but its inclusion does seem to border on the almost mythical like we're going outside the realm of normal reality. I'm certainly not doubting miracles can occur. I believe as a Christian, someone came back from the dead. Like that's foundational. So this is clearly within the realm of what God can do. But again, I don't want to insist a miracle has taken place unless the Bible has told me it has taken place. I don't want to make additional claims 
to my mind, that borders on what the Pharisees did, adding to Scripture. I don't want to go beyond what Scripture tells me here. And then lastly, Tim is quite right that Jesus does refer to Jonah the prophet. Jonah the prophet is a historical figure. I'm much less certain that he is referring to him as a historical story in that instance. He could simply be referring to Jonah as a story known by the people of his time. Not every story referenced in the New Testament is a story that Tim and I would think are true stories from the past. So we'll come back to that. So those are four points, I think, against Jonah's historicity. As I said, I think there are answers for those, but I think we need to really deal with those seriously. Now, against Job, I really don't think Job is history. I don't think it's meant to be history. So here's my points for that. The book begins with the Hebrew equivalent of once upon a time. There once was a man in the land of Uz named Job. What follows then in the following account is the minimum amount of details necessary for the plot. We're given his personality in the rest of verse 1, but only insofar as things that are plot relevance. In the following verses, we're given his family with no names, we're given his possessions, and we're given his routines. We're not given name places aside from that initial location. We have no dating points, etc. Characters are only named when they speak and are plot relevant. So, for example, Job's wife speaks, but she is not named. Now, compare this, listeners and viewers, to our historical narratives. Let's say I go to the introduction of Abram in Genesis chapter 12. Let me just read a couple verses for us. So Abram went as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and their possessions, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. How many details are crammed into just those few verses? Compare that to the introduction of Job, and you see there are very few details. Now, Tim or anyone else might say, well, that's unfair. You're mid-book. That's not the start of a book. Well, let's do a fair comparison then. The opening of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The man was named Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malhan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And I could keep going on, but did you notice every character, including the sons who die without saying anything, are given names? We're given times. We're given places. We're given copious amounts of details. Job starts, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And off we go. It's enough to start the plot, and we have no additional details. That feels very much like a parable, a story given with only enough details to move the story forward, but not enough to really ground us in real history. Now, beyond that, we have specific clues, and one of the biggest clues is where Job is from. Job comes from Uz. Uz occurs in the Old Testament three times as a name. He's a son of Aram in Genesis 10, a son of Nahor in Genesis 22, and a descendant of Sire in Genesis 36. Significantly, it is never used of a place. It is always a person's name. Now, we could argue eventually that person went and founded some sort of city somewhere, but realize the Bible never locates that land. In fact, biblical scholars have no idea where this land could be. <laughs> Interestingly, it's maybe because this land doesn't exist. And that's not just a ha-ha-ha, but the name Uz is important. 
See, the name us is a biform or alternate form of the verb ya'atz, meaning to take advice or to consult. That means Job is from the land of consul or making plans or taking advice. Isn't that interesting? That's what the story is going to be about, about people taking counsel and advice with one another. That is the land that Job comes from. I think that name is highly indicative that this is not supposed to be a real land. Similarly, Job's friends are equally historically problematic. Uh, the Naamathite is the only occurrence of that word in the entire Old Testament. We have no idea who those people are. The Shuhahite could be descend, uh, descended rather from Shua in uh, Genesis 25.2, but again, that is the only other occurrence of that word in the entire Old Testament. Only Eliphaz, the Temanite, appears to be from a people that we actually know existed and where they were from. The Temanites are in Genesis 36, verse 11. So his friends are somewhat odd. His location is somewhat odd. And furthermore, his friends neatly encapsulate differing aspects of retributive ideology and theology from Israel. They appear, I would argue, to be set up as spokespeople, very eloquent and distinct strains of thought. Now, I ask you, how historically likely is it that a non-Israelite man would have three non-Israelite friends who are very articulate and almost like the primary speakers of specific strains of theology from a nation they don't belong to? That feels quite odd. That feels quite distinct. That feels quite intentional from an authorial perspective, but it feels very artificial, as if this is not a real history story. So those are kind of my arguments from the text. Taking a step back, my last point is that Job does not fit the ancient Near Eastern slash Israelite criteria for being a historical text. Van Cedars, in his 1983 study of ancient Near Eastern historiography, said there are five criteria for quantifying history writing in Israel. I can go through all five during the Q&A time. I don't want to uh, sway us here right now. But importantly, of those five criteria, Job most certainly fails criteria number three. Criteria three is that history writing examined the primarily moral causes of the past uh, in the past of present conditions and circumstances. Unless Tim is willing to argue that there is a specific event that Job's story is meant to help elucidate in the modern Israelite world, or rather world of the time of writing, Job does not fit the normal criteria for writing down history. Other authors maybe do make that argument, but I don't think I heard Tim make that argument. Beyond that, it likely fails uh, criteria number one and possibly number two. I uh, can elucidate that further in the Q&A time if we want. Now, that's all very negative. I don't think Job is history. So what do I think Job is? Well, I don't think it's historiography, but I think it is what we can call a story of protest or a theodicy. This is a genre that exists not elsewhere in the Bible, but elsewhere in the ancient world. We have examples of people questioning their gods in the midst of trial from the nations of Sumer, Egypt, and Babylon. The point of these stories significantly, is to produce a fictional debate to address real questions. Job's sufferings, then, if this is the genre he's in, are emblematic and encapsulating of real events and real pains, but are not indicative of a historical person that went through precisely these events. Rather, he stands in for all those who have some suffered in similar ways. His story is the vehicle by which we can engage the question of God's goodness, the, sep um, 
goodness and engagement in the world. The separation of Job from a historical event, I think, in no way lessens the importance of the message. Rather, it gives us mental space to be able to more uh, fully encapsulate the significance of these questions. Sometimes being too close means we lose being too close means we lose perspective. So being able to step away, that kind of abstractedness in this artificial dialogue helps us really surface some of the key theological debates. So that's why I think Job is. I'm okay with Jonah, uh, Jonah being more historical. I'm good with that, but Job, much less certain. So to recap, since I want to have a nice little clear sign by here, when thinking of the historicity of Jonah and Job, I think Jonah is likely historical. I think Job is likely not. So here I stand. I could do no other, Tim. There you go. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Nailed it like Luther there. Good job. Um, so, Brian, this is interesting because uh, as we kind of just let everybody take a mental break, okay, I, I think it's worth noting that actually Brian and I are, in a sense, in essential agreement about a very important point. Mm. And here's that point. You can see see if I get this right, Brian. We actually both agree that the Bible itself is our hermeneutic or is our lens for determining whether or not a text is intended to be taken as historical. Yes, in other words, absolutely. both Brian and I are saying, well, let's look at the textual features. Some things in Scripture are obviously stories to teach a moral lesson. Others are obviously historical. There are some things that have features that might tend to move on that kind of spectrum one way or the other, and that's where our disagreement is, especially with the book of Job, is that Brian says, here are all these features of the book that are meant to be signs to us. This is more of a story than it is an historical account, whereas I would say I think there are features that say it does show that his, historical features rather than those other literary features. Um, yeah. It, it, I, I messed up a little bit there in there, Brian, but would you say that's that's a basic agreement that we both share? Yeah, this, we both, I think, start with the same presupposition that Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. We need to yeah. claim for the Bible what it claims for itself. Um, and so that's that's kind yeah. of our starting point. And, and this is this is the beauty of the debate. And I think something we both wanted to surface here. Um, because very quickly, especially in maybe popular level discussions, right, you can have very naive approaches to the text that can cause mm -hmm. you to say or claim things that you go, that's not really what the Bible claims. And now we have done what the Pharisees have done. We've added to scripture out of a very sincere place, right? Trying to protect God's word, trying to revere it. We've actually now done a disservice. And so we're both want to make sure we're doing what we can to be faithful to the biblical text. So, yeah, I think we, we start on that point of agreement and diverge from there. So, uh, viewers, for those of you with us tonight, feel free to start jumping in, adding your questions. Tim and I, have, I think, have a few lined up already, um, but then we will happily address your questions or clarify anything that we left out. So, Tim, uh, I want to start with you, just a, a simple one to, to make sure, sure we're using the same terminology. But um, yeah. the, the simple definition of history or historiography I used is that these books, history writing, is a representational work about real events. Are you right. okay with that definition? Anything you want to clarify or change about it? Yeah, I think I think to just put this into maybe a practical way, uh, again, when we think of any kind of history writing, 
we have to distinguish between the events themselves and the writing that describes those events. Um, and that's where we would both say that anything written is perspectival or is coming mm -hmm. from a particular perspective. And so we have to take that into account, right? And in particular, this is this is why to help our readers understand or our listeners understand, Brian, uh, when we think of the events of the Old Testament, we've said this before, but the Old Testament narratives are highly selective. It, it's not just that they yeah. don't tell everything, it's that they really tell very little in terms of the detail. They tell essentially only what they know we need to know. Um, so yeah, I, I like the distinction between historiography and the historical events, um, and even that representational. I think that's where I agree with your definition, because because of the selectivity of the Old Testament narratives, they aren't meant to be, I'm describing every single detail in the way that we would say an extensive newspaper article is. It's more like, I am telling you the parts of the story that I want to draw your attention to. Um, yeah. So it's not meant to be comprehensive. So maybe a helpful, uh, a, a helpful analogy for our listeners. Mm -hmm. When we think we're reading uh, Old Testament history, what we're expecting from it at, as Old Testament scholars is we aren't looking for a picture. We're looking for a painting. A painting mm, yeah. is an artist's representation of reality, right? And so if you see a painting of a landscape, you're not going to say, oh, that's completely made up. You go, no, that's a real landscape they looked at. And yet the artist isn't one for one reproducing it, but through mm -hmm. their artistic skill are drawing your attention to what's significant about the landscape while being faithful to representing it. So mm -hmm. at least from my mind, that's why, or that's what I'm looking for in a historical text. It has to be talking about a real event, but I'm going to allow it to have some artistic license to highlight why the event matters, because that's at the end of the day, why it's been kept for us is there's a purpose or a lesson behind it. Um, so, Tim, here's another point of agreement. Historical mm -hmm. texts have significant moral lessons for us. So, right, right just just because you say it's historical doesn't mean I've, we've eliminated the moral aspect. Moral aspect is there regardless. Um, yeah. So two points of agreement there for us. Okay. So let me let me ask you a question then, Brian, because to me, especially with the book of Job, I, I, I'm going to go tit for tat with you here in a few minutes on some of the details of the people groups and other things that you know. Okay. Uh, but to me, the biggest point is, when I look at the New Testament, it seems highly odd, as James talks about Job, you know, consider Job the righteous sufferer, he pits that right next to the prophets. And the prophets in James 5.10 are, are, to me, clearly meant to be taken as, really, look at the real life of these prophets, and you can think of Hebrews 11, right, where there are many prophets and all the things that happened to him. James is mm -hmm. essentially saying the same thing. Look at these prophets as an example. Then he turns around and says, look at Job as an example. So to me, I look at that and say, well, we wouldn't say again, like I said, George Washington and Iron Man. You know, we, we might say George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, but to use a different analogy, we wouldn't say, you know, Abraham Lincoln and Frodo. Both of them are good models. So how would you read the New Testament's references to Job? And then I would also throw in Jonah as well. Yeah. Okay. So this was going to be one of my pushbacks to you as well. So let's get to it. Because um, right. it, it, it is both James and Jesus, right? Reference these characters. Um, we'll start with the James reference. So um, James talks about the prophets. It is important. He doesn't singularly call them out. He does call out Elijah seven mm. verses later, I think. I, I don't have the text in front of me, but uh, later yeah. in James five, right? He talks about Elijah. 
Um, so you could say, oh, he has a collection of real people and then Job, so therefore Job must be real. Or he has a section of scripture and a book from scripture. They are both mm. still the same, and they I don't think his point is uh, demonstrably changed. You said it would be odd for us to talk about George Washington in one breath and then Iron Man in the next. Uh, My pushback is that I think that's a modern problem. I don't think they had that problem, and I can show you it, because in mm -hmm. Jude, Jude moves through historical event after historical event and then brings up the ascension of Moses, where the devil fights mm -hmm. with the archangel over his body. Are we going to claim that that's a historical event that we want to defend? If not, he has just moved from history to myth without missing a beat. There's no mark demarcation that we've now done something different. He's just pulling on stories that his listeners would know. They might be historical figures. They might not be. But the concept of history is something that is going to be more ingrained in the Western world, as you and I understand it, that there are historical characters and fictional characters. I think that's a distinction that's much greater in our minds than in their minds. They are looking at the stories that bring meaning to their lives. And so in that vein, I don't see it as a big jump between you have these books that tell the stories of prophets and these, this book that tells the story of Job. You might think some of those were real in the past. You might not, but they're functionally operating the exact same way. Same thing with uh, Jesus's words, right? He talks about Jonah. And I'm much more open to Jonah being historical because he does connect it to the Queen of Sheba. Mm -hmm. Right there, you have two specific people going to specific events. I think that's maybe a bit more strong. But even then, is Jesus's story materially changed if he's simply referencing this is a story you are aware of? Because that's what Jesus pulls on, the knowledge of the people he's talking to, to craft his sermon points. So um, I'd be interested, what do you do with like the ascension of Moses? The fact that we do have both historical and non-historical blended together in Jude. Yeah, that's a good question. I actually think that Jude believes that that's historical. Um, and so interesting. And, okay. Yeah, I do. And and here's why. So is Jude because wrong? I don't actually think Jude is wrong. Uh, I would say that there are certain things that are tra traditionally received. And uh, and so when we think of Jude and the Ascension of Moses, we also uh, read in, in Jude, verse 14, I've got it pulled up here, Enoch, the seventh son from Adam, mm. prophesied about them. Now, I think you would probably say he's just referencing that literarily. He might not literally think that happens. But I'm I'm willing to say maybe he really is referring to those as true events. Um, I don't think that he receives them as Scripture, but I think it's one of those things where uh, a non-scripture text in his mind, and I think we can follow him, uh, is is true, is historical. So I actually would say, uh, I, I, I would argue that Jude does see those as, as historical, which would then support my point that he is using very clear events from scripture with other events that he deems historical, um, and therefore we don't have an example of one being mixed with the other. Uh, so first Enoch is historical? I, I'm not saying the entire thing is. I think that there was a, a, a living tradition that Enoch did prophesy, and I think mm -hmm. that he saw that prophecy as historical. Um, okay. Yeah, that's something that yeah, maybe I'm... you can talk about with our guest mm -hmm. in a couple of weeks. Uh, but yeah. I, I do. I think, that, I think that he is citing those uh, as something that really happened. Yeah.
Okay. Um, first, Enoch is... is yeah, that, that, there's probably more to unpack there than we can go into now. Okay, so that's an mm-hmm. interesting response. I, I'm not at all certain with it. And, and just broad strokes, the reason yeah. why is I'm not okay with Jude being... Jude would be factually wrong. He would not be wrong in his own mind, even he might th- believe it's true, but inspiration wise, he's now factually wrong about that text um, or possibly wrong. That That's where it would get interesting, but uh, I'm, yeah. I'm less okay with that. Um, well, and that's where I would say, oh, even if he textually does not uh, cite it in a way that, that is in, in accordance with our text, I think it's very possible that Jude was working with a different text. So, uh, or that he was uh, speaking, and, and this is a distinction I'll make real quick to our listeners. Mm-hmm. I think that he was very possibly not trying to quote it directly, but was trying to uh, quote a tradition that was known to him and and accepted by him. And the same thing with, with uh, Michael in disputing the burial place of Moses. Um so here's the distinction, and this is this is something for our listeners that's well known, uh, but it's distinction in scripture between ipsum of verba versus ipsum of vox, and right. uh, that's just a couple of Latin phrases that mean basically is scripture quoting uh, word for word exactly what was spoken by people, or is scripture quoting the voice of those people? In other words, their words um, that are closely tied to what was actually literally said, but is the author able to paraphrase essentially? Um, And here's where it comes into play in the New Testament. I don't want to get us too far off the rails, but think of this. The New Testament writers wrote their wrote the Gospels or wrote their writings in Greek, uh, and yet it's almost certain that the conversational language uh, of the disciples was not Greek. And so we know that what we have in the Gospels is not direct quotations, it's quotations in another language, and that helps account for the variations we see in the different Gospels. In other words, we don't have their direct quotations, we have paraphrases of them. Interestingly, in some cases, we do. Rare cases, for Mm -hmm. instance, in the book of Mark, we have Jesus actually speaking in Aramaic, and we have what he says. But that gets to kind of the point we made earlier, Brian. And so that's what I would say in Jude. That's why I'm bringing it up. Uh, In Jude, I think we have more of a paraphrastic understanding than we do direct quotations. And I think those likely come from traditions that are extant in Second Temple Judaism, uh, that perhaps Enoch was actually a prophet. Obviously, the Old Testament doesn't speak that directly, but they went wild with their imaginations, right? He was someone who oh, walked sure, with yeah. God and was no more. So I think there could have been a living tradition that truly uh, that Jude knew about and was citing, even if he's not citing a particular textual tradition of an actual book. That's a little bit right, complicated. So, yeah. But. No, that's a helpful clarification, though. Um, I'm okay with him citing a living tradition, but my argument would be I don't think that guarantees he thinks it's a— it's a real yeah. historical figure and what we would mean by that. Um, yeah. So we have these these texts in the New Testament. Do we have any positive evidence from the Old Testament that either text was meant to be read in a historical fashion? Yeah. Um, so here's, here's what I would say uh, when it comes to the internal evidence of the book of Job. I would actually, and I'll, I'll try and turn this on its head, and we'll see if it works, Brian. You made the point that the three friends are from locations that we don't have uh, in historical record, um, except except for one, right? 
one we know yeah, about people, the other two peoples right not locations right exactly so yeah. the timonites okay there's evidence of those in genesis uh, but mm -hmm. i actually think that that works against the argument that it's meant to be uh it's meant to be you know a uh, a moral story and here's why if if you were going to depict a land that was meant to be uh, you know meant to be non-historical then why wouldn't you pick something that also had meaning say like your argument with the land of us so mm -hmm. you know i'm thinking and again i know what you're going to say that this is a western perspective on these things but you know uh you think of like the wizard of oz there's munchkin land okay mm -hmm. um and and that's obviously far-fetched but here's my point why would they use the names of peoples that we have no idea who they are. What would be the the literary point? What would be the ad if you're trying to say land of us, right? That's the land of, land of council. Why would you include people groups that have no known corollary and no obvious literary value to the story? So I'm just interested, kind of what would you say to that argument, Brian? Yeah, so a lot of ink has been spilled trying to find meaning in these words and right. At the end of the day, nothing's carried the day because especially mm -hmm. the Nahamathite, it's like good luck trying to parse what that means. Mm -hmm. um, but it's an argument from silence. So, right, Tim, you, you're trying to make the point of you would only keep this if it was historical. Right. Um, right. But that's also an assumption because I could equally say the assumption is the meaning has been lost. It was an mm -hmm. obscure wordplay or it was connected to a people group that they knew and we no longer have that. Right. One other argument I haven't seen made is you could say the people groups have been picked so to avoid certain associations. We know that nations take on some interesting qualities as you progress through the story of the Old Testament. Uh, mm -hmm. Egypt, Babylon, they start becoming bywords for certain types of characteristics or opposition to God. Mm -hmm. So you could, as a writer, go, we, we sometimes run out of problems. We run out of people that we can use without unduly prejudicing our readers because i think we're yeah. supposed to come in with a fairly like all right these friends are here they're here to grieve with Job. you're not mm -hmm. supposed to like have your hand tipped that oh this is not going to go well um and, and so you do gotcha. have these I, I think kind of three maybe more abstracted maybe it doesn't mean anything maybe it's just supposed to be i don't want to put this in association with the enemies or allies of yeah. israel um, the, the Timonite is interesting. You didn't bring it up, but I'll bring it up for you. The only possible <laughs> historical reference for Job might be King Jobab, hmm. who's mentioned in Genesis 36, 11. So there's an interesting connection there, but that's all you have is you have Job and Jobab, meaning father of Job. Like it's close. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe yeah. there's something there. Well, and your points, your points well taken in terms of the description of Job. Uh, you know, you said that basically it starts with a Hebrew equivalent of once upon a time. Um, here's how I would here's how I would look at that. I think uh, the the use of the names I actually think is important. And here's here's why. Uh, why would the Israelites choose a non-Israelite uh, in in the story of a non-Israelite in their scripture than the rebuttals of three non-Israelites in in the story itself? Why would they include that unless they had a good reason to, namely that they believed it actually happened and the Lord actually interacted with that particular individual? Um, so even the idea of it being non-Israelite in so many ways, to me, mm -hmm. 
would indicate, hey, the Israelites, if they didn't think this actually happened, they wouldn't give it this kind of credibility and include it in their scripture. So what would you say to that? So I, I would say that's actually a strong argument for it not being historical, because <laughs> no one in it is from Israel, which is quite yeah. striking. Um, I'm trying to think live real quick. Is there any other book that fully ignores someone that is either in the nation or is in the lineage of the nation? Because hmm. Genesis, right, obviously nation isn't around yet, but you have the, the ancestors of them. Yeah. I think it's the only book of the Bible, right, that never really hits the land, but it assumes the theology of Deuteronomy. And so right. that's the difficulty. You have Israel, non-Israelites using the theological arguments, especially of later Israel and Judah, retributive mm -hmm. theology. And so that's kind of an oddity of like, why? Why do you have non-Israelites using Israelite theology? Where did they get that from? Because mm -hmm. uh, if you go to like the tradition, the conservative traditional dating that this is equivalent with Abram, Deuteronomy is still in the future. You're too far back for this theology, uh, we would say, generally speaking. Um, so my point would be, why is it non-Israelites if we're making the story up? For what I said, to give us uh, distance. Distance gives us perspective. Being mm -hmm. too close to something means you can't see all the facets. C.S. Lewis was big on this, right? When he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, he said, one of the beauties of these stories is you can step out of the real world and find the same problems in your fantasy world, but now they're clearer. Now you can mm -hmm. see them. Now you can deal with them and then bring that solution back with you. Mm -hmm. I think this book is trying to get at problematic holding of Israelite theology. But if you put it within the context of your own country, your own debates, your own kind of uh, ossified viewpoints, you aren't necessarily mm -hmm. going to see the clarity with which we want to get at these ideas. So we set it apart. We put it away because now it's, oh, we're talking about them, them. Sorry, interrupting my train of thought. You used uh, Nathan and David. He uses mm -hmm. a story, right? And David falls into the trap. He's like, oh, that man should be killed. And he's like, you're the man. I would argue you could say maybe something similar has happened. We are building this trap of we've stepped out of our own arguments. We can deal with this idea, but then are confronted the, with it's our God at the end. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is a story that I have to wrestle with, my theology, mm -hmm. my viewpoints. So that, that would be my, sorry, long-winded argument <laughs> or, or response to you on why I think it's non-Israelites, to give us perspective. Yeah, and that's interesting. I can see that from a literary perspective, that they have a more neutral association in the mind of the Israelites, and so therefore you can kind of step out of your own world. Um, but I, I'll, I'll say this. There are some points I didn't find as convincing. For instance, mm -hmm. Job's wife is never named. Um, Peter's wife is never named in the Gospels, and yet she's obviously meant to be taken as an historical figure. We don't know her name. Uh, but we don't so have I stories think, with her. Well, we have a story with her mother-in-law. So, uh, <laughs> and, and Paul, right, says, am I not allowed to take a believing wife like other apostles? So I think yeah. there's a very clear indication there is an historical wife, um, even though she's not named. Um, and then the, the, and this, this I think is the key are the descriptors used in the book of Job meant to be the kind of, you know, uh, fairy tale version, right? There's Prince Charming, there's Cinderella, there are these kind of like, you know, uh, almost plastic kind of people. Uh, and that's where, as I look at, as I look at Job, again, I'm willing to grant that this is a stylized retelling of the history. 
but I would argue that those details could also be accounted for because of the nature of the kind of story it's telling. In other words, why is there no Oak of Mamre or why is there no, you know, time? Well, it's because this, this thing that happened is intended to be timeless, right? It's historical, um, it's historical moment is not significant uh, in terms of its truthfulness. So I agree with you on that. Uh, but I don't necessarily think that those would be literary markers of this didn't actually happen. Um, and that's where I do take the the kind of foreignness of it. I'm not convinced that, hey, this is literary neutrality. I'm, I'm convinced that that's actually an indication these things did happen. And again, I look at the New Testament and I think, uh, yes, I get that it's Western to say you can't mix and match. But I still think that would have been odd, even from an Eastern mindset. So that's a lot to throw at you. No, I mean, those are good points. I I would just ask, why would we preference a historical reading over a non-historical reading, given what you just said? Because it has been abstracted. It has been made timeless. Why then would we prefer a historical reading versus uh, a theodicy reading of the text? Yeah, and that's where I I really would point to the New Testament, where, uh, again, that sticking point in my mind is, Obviously, historical prophets. Uh, James talks about this is what God did for Job since he persevered. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's like it does seem like something would truly be lost if you said, "Well, Job actually didn't persevere," uh, but this is a story, and we all, you know, it's like uh, persevere like Frodo. Okay, if we know that's not historical, um, does it lose some of its punch? So I don't know. I'll have to think about that more with James. I do I do think the stylized features of Job make it a totally different scenario than Jonah. Um mm-hmm. so and and this is by the way something for our readers like there are many uh there are many conservative uh evangelical bible believing Jesus loving people who have for a very long time said you know what Job just kind of seems like the kind of literature that isn't meant to be taken as historical. So Brian's position is not yeah. novel in any way. Um, even though for the most part, Job is unfortunately just a neglected book as a whole. Um, and and that's, yes. that really is sad. So um, uh, let's circle back to, to Jonah real quick, because we're leaving him out. And then um, uh, viewers that are on with us tonight, feel free to start putting questions. I, I see one already. We'll get to some more. But um, going back to Jonah, there was a, a pushback and i have an answer but uh tim i also want to see if you got a good answer for us um in the history of nineveh right major city of assyria it's described as this massive city in the book uh we have no history of it repenting yeah how do you account for that i I have an answer but i'd love to hear what your answer is so i i would say uh first of all we have to understand what the repentance of nineveh is described as so is it is it a mass revival where they all become, you know, like Ruth, where they're sort of grafted in as Israelites? And I think the answer to that is obviously no. There are specific mm-hmm. things that God's wanting them to repent of, uh, and I think their response is not to become now followers of Yahweh, but I think it's a specific kind of repentance. Um, and so I think that's that's important because that might not show up in the his- historical record uh, just because it wasn't a massive change of religion. Um, but I also think uh, just from just from a big picture standpoint, there are all kinds of things that uh, don't survive in the historical record that uh, later more historical evidence shows did happen. 
Um, now, to your point, the annals of Nineveh and Assyrian history are well attested and well recorded. So the argument's a little bit stronger because it'd be like, well, this is the kind of thing that would have made it in, and we've got a lot of evidence where it doesn't show. Um, right. But I think it's I think it's also possible. I mean, there's a lot of explanations, and and all of them are going to be speculative. Uh, I think the determination has to be, is the text intended to be historical? And then we basically determine it from that. But it's not unusual, right? I mean, if there's an embarrassing thing that happens in history from the perspective of a later audience, that gets scrubbed, right? Same thing mm-hmm. with Sennacherib's prison. You know, you have the story of yeah. Sennacherib who's surrounding Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, in Sennacherib's prison, right, you have an external, not in the Bible, uh, attestation that this happened. But what does Sennacherib say? He doesn't say that God, you know, won the battle and sent sent him back. He says, well, I had Jerusalem like a bird in a cage, you know, and then uh, I decided I would let him off that day, but live to fight another day. You have two very different perspectives of the same event, mm-hmm. um, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if a later Assyrian looks back and let's say there is evidence of this, um, this revival. Well, that's a good thing to throw in the fire, right? Uh, in the same way that there are many letters uh, that various historical figures burn at the end of their lives. Uh, and it's, it reminds me of Winston Churchill, Brian, who uh, someone asked him, uh, will history be kind to you? And he said, of course. And they said, well, how do you know? And he said, because I intend to write it. Um, the Assyrian Empire eventually wins out, so it's not surprising to me that they would not like that idea of an Israelite revival in the middle of their uh, telling of the history of Assyria. Yeah, and that's kind of where my answer would go as well. We have plenty of examples, I'm thinking specifically of like Egypt, where you have a polytheistic society, a new leader or new class comes to power and a new god kind of ascends in the pantheon. One of the first Mm -hmm. things you do is you obliterate quite typically the traces of those that came before. (laughs) Um, So it doesn't really surprise me, especially a power that went on to become a global superpower or (laughs) I use global because I'm too, uh, we're too inside on the old Testament, old Testament global, meaning the near East. Um, It doesn't surprise me that they would obliterate a a blip in their record as it were, right? Some King comes up, takes the throne uh, and, Oh, we have this new religion, and then it goes away. Um, so that doesn't bother me. That's uh, that's a, I, I think, an easy example. Um, the Fake fish news is not new. Uh, it's certainly not new. Uh, <laughs> on the fish or the uh, the whale, whichever one you prefer. Some people already point that out. Uh, how could you live in the belly of the whale for three days? I'm just going to throw this out there, and uh, we can just leave it there if you want. I don't think the book says Jonah was alive for those three days. In fact, I think it says the opposite. <laughs> so I don't think we have to try to worry about how did he survive for three days. I think he died and resurrected because I think that's Jesus's point um, yeah. when he uses him. But anyway. Yeah. Um, and that's another one of those positions, I'll say, that is actually more popular among mm-hmm. students of Jonah and scholars of Jonah than people realize is that, uh, you know, when, and the reason you know this, Brian, just briefly, when he says, you know, I descend into the depths of Sheol, these things all yeah. wrapped around me, like the, the, the language there is language that's indicating death. Now, whether he's saying, I almost died or I actually died. Whether it's died, poetic or not, yeah. Right, right. So, um, Brian, uh, let's, let's take some time for questions uh, all right. as, as we think about this. So I'll let you look at the questions and uh, see if there are any that you want us to tackle. 
Okay, so we, we've got a, uh, two questions back-to-back. I think I can answer them as the same one. So uh, I referenced yeah. Van Cedar's. So Van Cedar's basically looked at what documents do we have of the ancient world that we know the culture thought that they were recording history, right? Mm-hmm. And so what this is in the culture they are talking about, like Samuel. This is going to be kind of history. Kings, this is attempting to be an annal, right, of real people and real events. And so he said, all right, so what are some of the criteria that seem to distinguish this class of writing, both in the ancient Near East and in Israel? And he came up with five. And this is, uh, I think, important for Job, because Job doesn't fit these five. So the five criteria are, first, history writing was a specific form of tradition in its own right, rather than the accidental accumulation of traditional material. So the point being that when you sat down to write a history, this was not a slowly building up process of multiple redactions. You might have redactors, but the bulk of the text had to be put down intentionally, not just accidentally. That's where I think Job maybe also has another problem. Job shows signs of maybe being accumulated in a few forms. Um, That's a whole nother deeper argument we won't go into, but potentially there's a problem there. Maybe, maybe not. Criteria Mm -hmm. two, history writing considered the reason for recalling the past and the significance of past events and was not primarily interested in accurately reporting the past. Now, we talked about this earlier, representational. That's what we meant, Mm -hmm. right? It's not trying to be blow for blow of everything that happened. It's trying to get at why things happened. Mm -hmm. Does Job get at why things happened? I think, interestingly, it doesn't, right? Job isn't told why he suffered. Um, so mm-hmm. that maybe pushes a little bit. I think it could still fit in that definition, but it pushes the bounds a little bit. Mm-hmm. Criteria three, I already mentioned history writing examined the primarily moral causes in the past of present conditions and circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some scholars that will argue Job is a response to Second Temple Judaism, in which mm-hmm. case you could say it's just, you, you're on more firm ground that this is a historical work. But um, I don't think. You go there, Tim. I don't think I go there either, Um, but that's a possible way to go. Um, Fourth, history writing was national or corporate in nature, simply meaning when you told a story of history, it was meant to be read. We're fine there. Uh, And fifth, history writing was literary and important part of people's corporate tradition. So it was culture making for this is who we are as a people going forward. So that's what Van Cedar said kind of signifies a text that was meant to be read in a historiography sense. So uh, Mm -hmm. Cynthia, Jacob, I hope that answers both your questions. Um, Yeah, those are good questions. Feel free uh, to add any more. Tim, I'll kick over you though. Uh, Kind of any thoughts on that? Yeah, I I think those are are helpful. Um, I also though, and this is very raw and I'm not convinced by what I'm about to say, but I'll throw it out there. (laughs) To me- Do it. To me, one of the things that's so interesting about Jonah and Job is that they are both so open-ended. Um, mm-hmm. And on the one hand, that could be seen as sort of an intentional ambiguity or sort of leaving people to figure it out themselves. Um, I actually think that could be another indicator of their historicity. Um, and here's, here's why. Because uh, fact is stranger than fiction. Right. I, I think it's almost like, okay, uh we're leaving this uh open ended because life is truly open ended. And I, I understand immediately where it's like, well that that doesn't that's not a definitive statement. 
uh, perhaps it's both, right? Perhaps there was an ending uh, in Jonah's life that the author intentionally left out for didactic purposes or for the purposes of teaching. Um, but I do think, just to me, as I, as I sum up, I think, our differences, we're looking at the same data, right? We're looking at the same features. Um, and essentially, I think your argument is, why is your instinct to say it's historical rather than starting in kind of neutral and letting the text shift you one way or the other? Because I am. Uh, I am coming mm -hmm. at it from a perspective, especially because of those New Testament examples where my instinct is to say historical until proven guilty. And I think yours is to say, well, let's look at the Bible and start in neutral and let the literary features push us one way or the other. Do you think that's fair, Brian? Well, I mean, to be less charitable to my position, there is no such thing as true neutral, right? We're, we're all coming in right. with, with presuppositions. My right. Something in the back of my head is I'm worried because having grown up in the church, I've seen plenty of times where very well-meaning Christians have made claims about the Bible that extend beyond what the Bible claims for itself. And that leads to problems both apologetically and theologically. So yeah. I'm not in neutral. I'm a, I want to see the Bible's made a positive claim before I will seek to defend that claim. Right. Um, and I don't right. see a positive claim of historicity explicitly for either book. I think implicitly it is there for Jonah, because especially even using Van Cedar's arguments, I think there's a specific event that Jonah's meant to, it yeah. is recalled. Um, because yeah. I'll, I'll just say it, Northern Israel was getting a little racist during his days. They didn't really like foreigners. And that's a problem in the story of the Bible where God's like, I'm, I'm kind of trying to redeem all people. So I see yeah. Jonah as a very like hard shot against that type of thinking. Like, no, 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 no. Right. You have to be okay with me loving your enemies. Right. Are you okay with that? Right. And it leaves that question. So I think that book is more historical. Sorry, that was a tangent. Um, no. I'm not in a neutral position. I'm in a, I want to see that there's a claim I have to defend before I seek right. to defend it. Yeah. Well, I'll give you one less opportunity before I sign off here, Brian, because we're running up to an hour, and I think we probably need to to tone, or uh, bring the bring the episode to a close. So anything else that you would like to say before you sign off tonight? Well, uh, I want to close with, uh, first of all, a uh, thank you to you, Tim, because I do appreciate being pushed. Um, part of the joy of been doing this series now for four episodes is I have a lot of ideas in my head. And I'm sure you do as well, that mm -hmm. it's like, I don't know how to soundboard this. Um, and so mm -hmm. I, I've really appreciated these, uh, these dialogues. You've given me some things to think about. Um, and at the end of the day, listeners, if you're trying to wonder, all right, so how does this fit in? I think we probably agree with the ideas of both books, mostly the same. Mm. I think Tim might argue there's a little more in the historicity of Job, and I'm, I'm okay saying that. Um, but one of the, the key values or key things I want to leave us all with is seek to claim for the Bible what it claims for itself. And let's yeah. be very cautious of going past what the Bible claims for itself. So mm -hmm. that's where I will kind of leave off. Tim, go ahead and take us on home. Yeah, and to that I would say I agree. Um, fundamentally, and, and Brian, this is where our heart is as teachers and scholars and those who care uh, and want people to read and understand the Bible. We want the Bible to set its own terms. Um, and that's where, for a lot of us, we do. We have to check, okay, what traditional things am I bringing to this? What instincts do I have that might not be crafted by the Bible itself? 
but might be crafted by my own tradition or upbringing. And again, Mm -hmm. that's not a bad thing. We all have those presuppositions. We all have those lenses. And as we think about this, again, I just want to end where I began. We're not questioning the fundamental historical facts uh, or that the acts of God in the Old Testament or the New Testament are in question at all. What we're talking about is these particular books and whether they were written to be read as historical um, in the ways that we've defined. So, Dr. Brian Koning, it's always a pleasure. It is always a joy. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. And uh, listeners, thank you so much for joining us as well. Um, as always, if it weren't for you, this would just be Brian and I talking to each other. And uh, we love talking to each other, but it's a lot more fun when you engage. Follow us on Facebook. Share this with your friends. Uh, we'd love for this to continue to grow. And, uh, and we have such a good time. We hope that you do too. So uh, until next time, you know what to do. Stay cool and stay old.